We are all following someone's words. All of us are following, maybe more accurately, maybe not just one person, but a group of people, a selection of people. We're following or living by the words in which we hear. You could say it another way. You could say we are students of other people. We're observing how they live, how they breathe, what they say. And in light of that, we are trying to navigate our way through the world in which we live. Uh, in the church, oftentimes, this is called discipleship. And it's a word to say we're being discipled by someone else. Let me give you a, just a couple examples, though. So kids, uh, they're growing up, and mom or dad says, that's hot, don't touch it. And in light of those words, the kid lives. They take the advice, don't burn their hand. They don't take the advice, they burn their hand, right? Many of you are receiving advice. You're allowing someone to talk to you every single day. You invite someone into your home in the evening for 30 minutes to come talk to you every single night. Maybe not for 30 minutes, for an hour, right? And so you turn on, maybe it's four hours, I don't know. You turn on Fox News or you turn on CNN or whatever it is you listen to and you receive words from somebody and they help you put the world together. You're listening to these voices. They're, in, they're interpreting things for you. And whether you think about it consciously or not, society at large, social fabric is actually discipling us along the way helping us to see a vision for the good life, helping us to figure out which way we should go, right? Some of you, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe some of you, like uh, Siler Thomas, greetings to those of you who are watching at the 01. Maybe you're waiting on the words of someone to help you with your fashion desi- design. So you're waiting on Kim Kardashian to tell you what's in, what's in vogue right now and what it is that you should be wearing or what it is you should be doing with your life, right? Maybe that's who you're waiting on. I don't know who you're looking to. Most likely, it's not someone that's way out there. Most likely, it's someone that's closer to you, right? Most of us take advice like this that says, hey, this is a great book. You got to read it this summer, right? Or it's, we went on this vacation. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. It was fantastic. Exceeded our expectations. You guys should try it out. Or it's, hey, have you tried out the new cheese at whatever your favorite little place is or balsamic vinegar? I don't know what you're receiving from your friends or not, video games, whatever it might be, but somebody is telling you something and in light of those things you receive, you are actually taking that information and you're guiding and directing your life in light of some of the things that you've heard. We're all following someone's words. And today, this morning, when we look at Psalm chapter 16, my argument is that it's worth following the words in which you're going to hear here from David. Okay, it's worth listening to not what it is I have to say, but it is what it is that David has to say. So I'm very aware you came in this morning and there are a number of things that are on who knows what's on your your mind right now. There's some of you who your kid is going to going to summer camp for the first time this summer. And you walked in this morning just anxious about, oh, my goodness, is she going to be okay at camp or is he going to be okay? Some of you graduation just happened. They finally picked a school. They're going to go off. We're going to be home alone. All right, honey, how's that going to work, right? You're, you're thinking about it, and you're wondering, how am I going to navigate that? Some of you are going, I'm raising kids in the state of Illinois. Pot's now legal. How are we going to do that as parents? What's going to happen in that side? Or you're talking to your accountant because what would it be like to live six months in a day in Wisconsin, and we can flip with Pritzker did? How do we, like, what do we do, right, in light of what's happening in our world? And we need somebody else from the outside to give us words to help us think through that. And don't worry, I'm not going to give you any advice on any of those things. I'm completely disqualified in most of those areas to even begin thinking about it. But I do think that it's worth you thinking about what David says in Psalm 16 this morning and actually adjusting your life to line up with what David says. Uh, That's true about God and even the way that he lives 
his own life. So if you've got your Bible or if you want to follow along, it's going to be on the screen, but get your phone out or your, if you want to use, got a paper Bible, they're in the pew right there. Psalm chapter 16, I want to read it for you. And then I want us to see how this is in so many ways, it's David's statement of trust in God. He's actually just declaring his loyalties, uh, declaring his allegiance uh, to God. And, it, and it's a pretty significant challenge. Um, and I hope it challenges you this morning the way it has me all uh, week long. So Psalm chapter 16. Here it says, it says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord that you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. But those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out my libations of blood or I will not sacrifice is a a word there to such gods or even take their name upon my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion in my cup and you make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also rests secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. For you know, for you have known, you have made known to me the path of life, and you fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David here, as he's writing this, right, in his royal position of king, he's been a leader, he's there, he's imploring a lot of investment-type language inside of it. So you hear at the yield at the end of his life, this is what's happening. He talks about the inheritance he's going to receive. It talks about the lot lines that are, that are plotted out. And, and so it, it's using that language, and I want to borrow some of that language to help us to really understand what I think David's trying to say here. Um, and so first, I'll give you two examples from just this week along these lines of investment. The first one is at our home yesterday. We had a garage sale and love hate relationship with garage sales, right? I mean, oh my goodness, it's so much work and you make like $4 and 47 cents. And at the end of it, you're going, holy cow, that was not worth it. But the basement's kind of clear. So that's nice. And now we're going to Goodwill with all this stuff. So that's like a really good benefit. But we had a really unique garage sale. The only thing we were selling were young girls clothes at our house. So I haven't met all of you. I've got three young girls. I have a 10 year old, an eight year old and a five year old. And when Julie and I got married and we found out we were expecting a girl, it was the first grandchild on both sides of the family, okay? And I have two brothers, so my mom has not bought any pink, purple bows, dresses. She hasn't done that. She's been holding out for 30 years to make those purchases. And so as a result of that, we have, we have an excess of children's clothes that, you know, at different times uh, each one of the kids have worn. But when we show up on that day, and this is a big investment in our life, and we come to sell it, it's like, oh, I remember that. What a cute little Christmas dress we put on her. Do you remember when we bought that? I remember the price tag when we opened that up from a gift. And it was like 50 bucks for this thing. And now everything's a dollar, right? You come to our house, you buy the girls' clothes, everything's a dollar. We're not even going to try to put stickers on it, right? And so the investment line is going, woo, right? It, it's, if that's your long-term investment strategy, then it's not going to be a good one, right? It, it, worn out, stained girls' kids' clothes is not going to get you anywhere long-term, Right? Uh, let's take a, the opposite example. This past week, if you're watching in the news, there's a young guy, he's in this cryptocurrency stuff, and he paid 4.5, a little over $4.5 million to have a meal with Warren Buffett, okay? I, I mean, I told Julie, I would have done it for like three and a half if he asked me. But anyway, this guy's gonna pay, he, and he gets 
seven friends along, if I remember it right, and they get to go have this meal, and I'm sure they're going to make their case for, for why, what it is they're doing, and blockchain's valuable and whatever else that's there. But Warren Buffett is known for his investment strategy. He's going to say, you need to think long-term. Short-term strategy is not the way to go. He doesn't get all amped up about quarterly reports. After 90 days, he's not going to say, yes, we need to adjust everything. He's going to say, no, that's noise. It gets in the way of what we're really trying to do. I want you to think about investing for a decade. I want you to think about investing for two decades at a time. If we're going to give a bunch of money to something, if we're going to support it, we're not going to think this way. We're going to think long-term. Okay. Again, I'm not giving you financial advice. I I don't know about that stuff. It's not my area, but I read the news and I, I look around. And my point is that is what David is doing this morning is actually saying, hey, hey, you need to have a longer investment strategy than Warren Buffett, okay? You actually need to live your life in light of eternity. So so don't think days, don't think quarters, don't think decades. You need to think about living your life in light of eternity. And when you think about living your life in light of eternity and you follow God and find him in the middle of that, actually, at the end, and what shows up at the end of the psalm is that there is great joy, There's great rejoicing. There's satisfaction in a life that puts God first and makes him your first allegiance. So in the psalm, I think we see David doing this three different ways, and that's going to be sort of the challenge. The first one is he just declares that God is his God. The very first thing he does is he just sort of pledges allegiance or he declares his loyalty to God first. And he says there in verse one and two, he says, for the Lord, he is my Lord. He is my God. In him, I will take refuge, right? It's, it's sort of just the statement that God is, God is my God. Um, we sang a song this morning that did something very similar. It was a song called The Creed, or I Believe, and we sang words like this. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus, for some of you in here this morning, that step to just declare any sort of loyalty to God like that is a really, really tough step. To sing the words of that song. Most people in the world today that woke up today did not do that and will not do that today. They will not try to say, I am going to be a person who is loyal to God. I am going to be a person who lives in light of who God is. Most people are not going to do that. So for some of you today, just hearing that challenge, just trying to do what it is that David does here, for the Lord is my Lord, in him I take refuge, is, that's your challenge. That's what you're leaving thinking about today. That might, that might be it for you. But he uses this language of taking refuge in. So he's doing this. Something's going on. We don't actually know the circumstances. And I haven't found any of the commentaries that say they know exactly and pinpoint when and how David wrote this that's happening. But we know that something troubling is going on in his life because he's seeking a place of protection. He's saying that God is the source in which I am going to find protection. So he uses, I need this word refuge. If you saw the video that Stephanie um, was sharing, Psalm 91, it uses the exact same word. The psalmist there says, in you, I will take refuge. And there, the language is like a little bird that's hiding under the, the wing, the shadow of the Almighty, the wing of the one who can protect them. And, and David is actually saying the same thing. He's saying, there is no other source in which I can truly find protection. There's, there's no other source which is truly going to bring me life that's here, but God himself. So the first thing we see here is David declaring his loyalty or his allegiance. My wife uh, went to Texas A&M. And uh, if you know anything about the Aggies, they love football. 
uh, in Aggieland. Um, so this is just north of Houston. Games start in September. There's a student section that is just massive. There's over 100,000 folks that can sit in at a game. And the student section is always in the sun, right? Because the people that pay full price for tickets, they get to sit in the shade. And so the students are over here just sweating it out. And at Texas A&M, the entire game, you stand up if you're a student. You, you don't sit down whatsoever. And the entire game, throughout the game, there are these yell leaders. They're not cheerleaders. They're yell leaders. They're these guys that are on the field that know all these things memorized and they scream them up and you scream them back. And just throughout the, the entire game, it's there. And there's some people, some students who actually don't participate in the yells or they don't stand up the whole time. They sit down. And those people have a name. They're called two percenters, right? And so if you sit down in the student section during the game or you get your phone out and you try to do this, you're not participating, you're going to get heckled by the other students because you're being disloyal, right? You're not participating. If you're going to be an Aggie, if you're going to sit in one of these seats, you're going to be on the team. You're going to wear the jersey. You're going to fully participate. And it's there. And I was thinking about it and I was looking at what David's saying. I was going, oh man, goodness, it's easy to be a two percenter when it comes to life with God. It's actually really easy to just sort of find a little, little place and, and kind of give, give God a 2% piece of what it is that we're doing. Eh, recognize him every once in a while. But what David is saying is actually the opposite. He's saying, no, my allegiance, my loyalty is with God. He is my Lord. In him and no other sources will I take refuge. So the first thing we see him just stating it. And then after he states it, he spends a little bit of time clarifying it. Um, and saying, this is, this is single-minded. It's not just that I'm loyal to God, but in light of who God is, I'm going to say no to a bunch of other things. I'm not going to participate in some other things because of who God is. So in verse 3 and 4 here, he says that he will not even speak the names of these other gods. He's not going to give them his loyalty in the way that others are. And he says that those that do such a thing, their sorrow is going to multiply or it's going to increase. It's going to become more and more along the way. Now, uh, most of you, I don't know everyone in here, most of you didn't wake up this morning and didn't have a statue of Baal or some sort of visual of Molech or the god of the Philistines, Dagon, on your dash and said, Dagon, as I go down 60 and turn onto 43 and enter into this parking lot, please protect me, right? That wasn't your thing. You, you, didn't, you didn't enter into idolatry that way. Maybe some of you did. Uh, maybe when you go home, you do that. That's very, very common in cultures unlike ours in Western society. It's very common for that to be a practice of many people today when they wake up. That's what they're doing. They're looking to something to be the source of their life in which they have protection and which gives them guidance. Most of you, that's not it. Most of you are like me. You're way more sophisticated than to be able to do something like that. But you're still doing the same thing as you take something that's not God and you're taking it from second place to first place. You're moving it from a, from a lower category to an ultimate category. And, and, he, and hear, hear this quote. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can only get second things by putting first things first. You can't get second things by putting them first. It, it doesn't happen. You actually lose them. So uh, here's a few examples of subtle ways in which I think that we're, we can enter into idolatry. We can, we can turn to something else. We can listen to another voice more strongly than we listen to the voice of God. One of those, and it's a great motivator, is guilt. 
um, guilt is like this, uh, it's like a great combustion engine inside of us that, that if we do something, there's an infraction and we're like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. And guilt kicks in and it's a high motivator and it's, it makes you make these promises. Absolutely never. I'm never going to do this. Never going to do anything like this again. And then two weeks later, you find yourself sort of out of gas and, uh, it's not sustainable. It doesn't give you the motivation to like continue moving forward in the direction that you're going because guilt just doesn't have that kind of long-term power. Short-term, great. Long-term, it doesn't hold on. Here's another one is making other people happy, pleasing people. Um, if you're a teacher, you see this in some of your kids in the room. You recognize pretty quickly in the first week, oh my goodness, He wants the teacher to be happy. She wants my attention and my approval. And those are great students to teach, right? Because whatever you say, they're going to do it. They're going to get straight A's. They're going to do it well. And they're longing for your approval that's there. You may have some of these kids in your own home. You may work with some of these people, great people to manage, because they're always trying to make the boss happy, right? I mean, it's fantastic to have someone who does that. And yet in the middle of their longing to make their boss happy or their shareholders happy or whoever it is that they're, they're trying to impress that's there... The moment that disappointment sets in, the moment that there's a little bit of disapproval, the moment that mom's not happy, the moment that the boss says, no, do it again, all the drive, all the motivation, the energy that's moving you in one direction, it's just like the air is out of the balloon. Like there's nothing left that's there to do that. Why? Because you experience disapproval. And it's in that moment that you realize, oh yeah, I was doing everything I was doing so that this constituency, this individual, would actually be proud of me, would, be, would approve of what it is that I'm doing. And you, you find that out. But it, it can keep you up late at night. It can wake you up early in the morning. It is an incredible driver, but in the end, it actually doesn't satisfy. It doesn't carry you through your life. So guilt is one. Approval is another. And here's another one. We're on the North Shore. I've looked at some of your resumes on LinkedIn. Accomplishment and achievement is this, this massive motivator. And it has driven some of you in this room to do some pretty remarkable things. And it's a great gift from God. The desire, not because you need a that a girl from your boss, not because you need a that a boy, not, not because you need someone else to tell you're doing well. You just want to prove it to yourself, right? You, you just want to be the person that has the willpower to keep going when all the odds are against you. You, you just want to have a little bit more discipline, a little bit more effort. You want to prove it to yourself and nothing, nothing is going to stop you from achieving the goal in which you set out to achieve right? You're just the kind of person who wins and you achieve it. And the only problem with that is this, is that sometimes you actually catch the thing you're chasing. Sometimes you actually win. Sometimes you actually achieve and you get on top and you go, oh, it's not delivering what I thought it was going to deliver. It actually, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of give back all the things that I had expected it would give back. There's a lady um, she was a, she's a humorist, feminist writer, and she lived up in the Northeast. And uh, she used to run in the circles with a lot of these pre-celebrity type people. And so she made this fascinating observation to me, and she's talking about some of the same things, and this is what, this is what she said. She lived in New York, and before a lot of these people got famous, she got to know them um, in their normal lives, like when they were busing tables or driving cabs or whatever it is they were doing in New York. And she says, she says, I pity celebrities. No, really, I do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand, they were once all perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I actually think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish, and then he giggles merrily when you realize that afterwards you want to take your life. 
Because you see, Sly and Bruce and Barbara, they wanted fame. And they worked and they pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide for them the personal fulfillment and the happiness that they, that they wanted. When it happened, they woke up and they were still themselves. And the disillusionment turned them howling and made them insufferable. Now, Cynthia here, she's not having her devotions in Psalm 16 and making a point about idolatry and how our hearts very subtly can take things that aren't first and make them first. And then when we actually catch them uh, or when we actually find out that they're empty in the end, she's not doing that. But she is making an observation about some people that she lived with in lives that she was around. And whether it's guilt or approval or accomplishment or whether you're the kind of person that just loves giving good gifts or, or, or um, benefiting others or whether you're someone who resolves tension inside of things, you're, you're a peacemaker, or whether you're someone who just challenges the process all the time. You just love to, to stand up and to fight uh, with others, to argue. Whatever number you are on the Enneagram, I just hit six out of nine of them right there by listing that. Whatever number you are, that is a good gift from God. It's how he's wired you. It's how he's made you up. But if you take that thing and you try to live for it, David says, your sorrows are going to multiply. At at the end, it's actually not going to be able to deliver any of the things in which you in your mind, the voice you're listening to, the story you're entering into, promise you that it's going to be able to enter, or sorry, going to be able to deliver to you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me say it again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was actually made for another world. That's where David is getting to at the end, the end of the psalm here when he says that. So the first thing, he's just declaring his loyalty to God. Second, he's saying it's not just loyalty. It's actually loyalty over and above anything and everything else. I'm not going to flirt with these other things. I'm going to say God is the one who does that. And then in the end, you see he rattles off all these different metaphors, these different images to explain what I think a good summary of is that his allegiance to God or his loyalties to God are comprehensive. So in other words, there's not certain areas in which he's loyal to God. When he goes to the temple... David is God's man. He's, he's devoted to Yahweh. He's going to worship him there. But when he's in other places, you know, he'll do what he wants to do. So he says, he is my portion. He is my cup. He is at my right hand. He is my safety. He is the one who provides for me. At the second half of the psalm here, he uses all this language that I think it just says sort of comprehensively, David is living an integrated life. He's not, dis, he's not living a disintegrated life where God is his God on Sundays, but Monday through Friday, he gets to do what he wants. No, he's he's not doing that. As a matter of fact, he's saying every one of these areas. So you see these word pictures. You see he says his portion, right? The piece of land he and his family will inherit, right? At that time of day in a uh, non-meritocracy society, this is your financial picture that he's saying. This is God's. He's saying his cup, right? This is, uh, um, we don't use this in the same way, but if you're thinking about your New Testament for a second, this language shows up. Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he's in the garden and he's praying and he prays to God and he says, God, let, Father, let this cup 
pass from me, right? Let the circumstances of my life, that thing which I am about to drink, right? And sometimes it's seen as blessing in the Bible. Sometimes it's seen as curse. Jesus here is, is, is going to drink the, bless, or the cup of curse. It's there. And he says, let this pass from me. David says, all of that, that, that circumstances of my life, those are also God's. And then he goes on to say his, his, God is at his right hand. So uh, again, there's, there's uh, different, different uh, word pictures he's using. But if you think like a warrior for just a second, which David would have been someone in charge of the, uh, the military, and he would have been a soldier, right? And so at his right hand, they held shields in their left hand. So when they're in battle, they're protected right here. This is a safe side. If you extend yourself in the middle of a fight, you open up the right side of yourself. And so you need someone to stand and protect you here because this is the vulnerable piece of you. And David says, that vulnerable side of me is with the Lord. He is the one who stands there and protects me. And then he uses this word always. He says that the Lord is always with me. How is it that, that, that David could be loyal to God always, all the time, every single day? How is it that he could do something like that? So um, I'm glad you asked. Uh, and I think the answer uh, shows up in the psalm, but it doesn't show up in the psalm in the same way that uh, I read it the first few times. It shows up in the psalm because somebody else quotes the psalm later on. So in our church calendar now, we are, we are 40 days after Easter, which is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is this word that is uh, some church traditions, this is a big deal inside of their church. They frame the whole day around it. And it's this time when after Jesus died on the cross, he was raised uh, out of the grave. He walked around and told people about the kingdom of God. And one of the things he told them is, hey, it's actually better if I leave here and not stay because you don't want me with you physically. It's better that God sends the spirit of God to be with you so that wherever you are, whenever you are there, that God's presence can be with you. He can indwell you. And so I'm going to leave. I'm going to send the father's going to send the spirit to be with you. So go up in this room and pray until the spirit comes. And Acts chapter two records Pentecost or the time when the spirit comes to the church and it's this explosive moment inside the church. And the thing you see in Acts chapter two is you see the guy named Peter, who is one of the closest followers of Jesus, one of his disciples. And, and when the spirit comes, Peter stands up and he starts preaching. Okay. And it's this really remarkable old sermon. He just, he's declaring, and it's what you'd think, right? It's Acts chapter two. And it says something like this. He says, he says, Hey, everybody, Jewish, and this is a Jewish audience. Hey, everybody, the one that we were waiting on, like the promised one, the one God has said from the beginning to fulfill the promise to Abraham, to David, to Moses, the one who we've been waiting on has come. He came in the form of Jesus, the Messiah, whom you crucified. And you killed, but he proved that he was the one that God sent because he didn't stay in the grave. As a matter of fact, he came out of the grave. He overcame death. And when he did that, he accomplished something for you and he accomplished something for me. He made a way for us to be right with God always. That's what Jesus did. And you know how I know he is the one who was promised? And in that moment, uh, Peter, in the middle of his sermon, he chooses to quote someone. And guess who he quotes right here in the middle of Acts chapter 2? Mike Woodruff. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I need you to listen. So, I, I, right? so dial back in, those of you who are gone. It's important. He quotes David in Psalm 16. He quotes the end of this verse right here. 
Peter, right in the middle of his sermon, I'm sure he took up Mike's challenge last week. He memorized the psalm and he memorized Psalm 16. And so at the end, he says this, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body rests secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. For you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's what Peter says to the audience. And he says, you know what? King David is in the tomb. I can show you where he lives. Let's go and see him. But Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And because he's no longer in the tomb, you can live a life that is loyal to God. You now can live a life that is loyal to God in every single area of your life. And how do you do that? Because God has demonstrated that he's more loyal to you than you will ever be to him. The way that we can actually have the power, the drive, the motivation to not just do it in the short term, but do it in the long term and actually do it for all eternity is because we have a God who is way more loyal to us than we will ever be to him. And he proved his loyalty to us by sending his son to come and to absorb the payment that we deserved, the sins that we committed to keep us from God. Jesus came in and he took those on himself. And then after receiving that punishment, He overcame death. And then he turns around to all of us and says, I'm sending my spirit. Believe this message and receive the spirit of God that I'm sending you so that anywhere and everywhere you go, you can be someone who, like David, is going to be loyal to God, who comprehensively, fully integrated into their life, every aspect of their life, can live in light of who God is and what he said. And you can live in light of eternity. And these words of David are words that I think are worth living your life in light of. It's worth thinking today long and hard about who you are, where you're going, the direction of your life, and doing it in light of what David has said. Because in the end, the yield that he's talking about, these promises of goodness, these promises of peace and joy that you can experience, that's what the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus is actually is bringing to us. And it's not so that we get joy. It's not so that we have that satisfaction but we actually get God. We get the first thing. And when we get God, all the second things of goodness and joy and blessing, they come with him. That's there. Take up the challenge from David. Make your loyalty to God. Singular, single-minded. Chase him because he's been loyal to you. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would have mercy on me, a sinner someone who has a hard time believing the things that I stand up and say sometimes. So I pray your spirit would do what it did in Acts chapter 2. As it filled Peter, that it would fill me, fill us to be people who believe in you, who can live in light of who you are, um, who can take steps forward uh, to have every area of our life submitted to you, our finances, our relationships, or whatever it is that's there. Um, God ultimately... Uh, The only way we know we have power to do that is because you give it to us. And so we thank you and praise you. You've demonstrated your great love for us, how much the Father loves us by sending his Son. Praise you that you're a loyal God. In Jesus' name.